Hello, I'm Llewellyn King, the host of White House Chronicle. Thank you for coming along. No subject interests Americans more when it comes to other countries, it seems, than Britain. Americans feel that very special affinity, both through heritage and culture, and of course, through two world wars. It is the first country that most Americans go to overseas, possibly because it's very different and yet you can speak English and everything you've always heard about is there, including of course, Buckingham Palace and the Royal Family. Nowhere is the Royal Family more revered than it is in the US, probably more so than it is even in Britain. There's an extraordinary new book out, Anatomy of a Nation, a history of British identity in 50 documents. It goes all the way back to the Roman occupation of Britain, and I'm joined by its author, who is in London, Dominic Selwood, and of course, by our regular co-host, Linda Gasparello. Dominic, welcome to the broadcast. Thank you, Ellen. It's very kind of you to invite me. I appreciate being here. Well, you are obviously a most fascinating man for a very quick history of yourself before we get into the history of the British Isles. Uh, you were educated at Oxford at the great uh, French University, the Sorbonne as well, and at Sandhurst, the British equivalent of West Point. That is quite a combination of universities. What was your order of study? In the order you've just given it, and my original studies were all in a medieval history. That was my, my, my training. And um, so the medieval uh, cursus always took so many of the, the, the thinkers from Oxford to the Sorbonne. So I very much wanted to do that. And also my studies were very much around the Crusades and the military orders. So I had a strong feeling that I should get some military education too. So then, then um, fitting Sandhurst in seemed to complete the picture. And did you serve in the British Army? I did for six and a half years. As an officer? As an officer. And you're also, as well as being a prolific author, and you write fiction as well as fact and analysis, but you're a barrister. Uh, that is an English lawyer who appears in court as a simple way of explaining it. It's a very, it's a very lovely profession, still quite a small one, um, largely centered in London in the old medieval inns of courts around the temple church. So it, it, it feels not unlike um, university and education still being continued into a professional world. But yes, I was lucky to have qualified as a barrister and I've um, served my professional career most of my life as a lawyer. Um, and nowadays you write books. Do you still practice law and it's criminal law when you were practicing it? Are you still in the, do you still appear at the Old Bailey and places like that? I do still practice law. Um, I, I've left the criminal law to younger men. These days I work on more environmental and social types of law. Okay, but that's very interesting. When do you find time to write? I think probably like you and lots of other people, one has to fit it round other things. So that means getting up pretty early in the morning and staying up fairly late at night and, uh, and giving over weekends to it. But if it's a hobby and it's something one's passionate about, it's a, it's a pleasure to spend the time doing it. And do you have a family? I do have a family, yes. Uh, yes, with me here in London. So that family is, uh, it's a, it's a, it's a London-based family. Their, um, their children are older now, but they still live with us, as is quite common these days. So it's a, it's a pretty noisy uh, house. How many children? Two. Sorry. Okay, very good. Yeah. Well, let's to your book. It's an extraordinary book, and it brings us right up to Brexit. 
and to the changes that have happened in Britain. I lived in Britain, as people, some viewers of this program may know, uh, in the early 1960s. I grew up in Africa in the British system there. And so, but now Britain is a very different place. When I'm there, I feel quite alien. I feel very American, in fact, when I am there. Uh, I don't know if you realize, Dominic, how much it has changed, at least visually it has changed. The people look different. It's now a multi-ethnic, multicultural society, which it was not when I left uh, in the mid 60s. Uh, what is the future of Britain? That really is one of the questions that the book poses. And I came to that thought by listening around 2016 to a lot of the arguments around Brexit, which some of your listeners may know about when Britain was deciding whether to stay with the European Union or not, which is something that had been with since the 1970s. Um, but in articulating visions of what the future for Britain will be, I rather heard people actually talking about their understanding of what the past of Britain was, and that was informing their view of where Britain would go. So I think that's a really salient question. Um, and that really is what the book is trying to point at. And my conclusion is that Britain has been very, very many different places over the centuries. You mentioned going back to Roman times, but even before Roman times, in, in prehistory, we know of different groups of people who came and settled here. And I think what the book really tries to show is that across history, uh, especially the last two millennia that we know most about when there was writing, Britain has been many different countries, and we can come back to that, but spoken different languages, had different connections, either to the Scandinavian world or the French world, or to the Anglosphere um, in more recent times, and to America or to Europe. Each of these really has been, has been a very different culture. So where we go from here, I think, is to understand something of the identity crisis we currently have. And the, the Brexit referendum resulted in the country being absolutely evenly split between two visions of itself. So that suggested to me that there is, there is more than fringe views at work here. There are mainstream differences and fractures in how we think of ourselves. And my conclusion is that actually Britain has reinvented itself many times over, over the millennia, and we are in the process of doing it again. The Britain that emerges will not be one of the binary options that was given before Brexit of either we stay with America and the, and the Anglophonic um, former colonies and empire or Europe. I think it's gonna be something different. We will reinvent ourselves again because we have to understand how to be a, a country that is smaller than, than 10 of you know, the US's states uh, uh, without the empire behind it anymore. And it needs to understand how to be a modern 21st century country, where the, the problems that the world now faces are very different to the ones that, that were faced even 100 years ago. So we're in that process of reinvention, which I think the US is also in, in a very different way. But it's a fascinating time to look at nations and, and talk about their identity. Dominic, in terms of the mechanics of writing Anatomy of a Nation, I'm interested in what came first. Was it the documents or the idea of writing Anatomy? anatomy based on the bones that you found, the 50 documents? I really wanted to use documents because I think that they, more than archaeology, more than architecture, more than other things one can use to look at history, all of which are very, are very important and tell us lots, but there's something, there's something just so vivid about documents. There's something so personal about them. So the documents came first and then the idea of using them to explore identity as a way of thinking about history. So, you know, with a document, you have, you have choices. Uh, for example, um, the recent pandemic, 
was occurring while I was writing the chapter on the plague and the Black Death. And there are lots of official chronicles and laws and things that came, you know, uh, of a more impersonal nature, you know, in a documentation uh, uh, format. But then the piece that I actually chose was a piece of graffiti that was written on a church in Ashwell in 1350 by somebody who survived the first plague. And it simply scrawled into the pillar of the church, um, pitiable savage violence, the dregs of society remain. And you're just, you're not gonna get that from um, the king's laws on, on sanity and cleanliness. I mean, all of which are interesting and tell us about how people are responding to the plague. But I love that, that visceral personal connection you can get from documents. So I really tried to look for documents that were, that were rich and told us about how people experienced the different eras. One of the things which I think is very distinctive about England is how far from being from England, but also Britain, including Northern Ireland and Scotland and Wales, of course, uh, but is how far from being homogenized they have always been, how regional it has remained, even while it was doing great collective things or ungreat collective things, depending on how you view this great uh, in the empire that each part, even each part of London, I lived in London, I knew a man who had never crossed the Thames River and never knew why he should. Uh, and yet this has somehow been melded together as a nation. So I see, I see two currents going on there, um, both, of which, both of which are complementary, but both of which have caused um, a, lot, a lot of the tensions that have created the, the Britain that we have. One of them is just the evolution of cultures as we go from Celtic to Roman to sub-Roman to Anglo-Saxon to Viking to Norman to Plantagenet to the emergence of England and an Englishness after the failure of the Hundred Years' War and a need to, to move away from that French identity all the way through to the 20th century and the mass immigration of the middle of the 20th century, which has changed so much of Britain within living memory. So that, that's one strand. But the other strand, as you rightly say, is that we have a very particular geography. We are, we are, we are an island nation. Um, actually, it's an archipelago of about 5,000 islands. But that's meant that the peoples who've lived here have had to do so in, in a framework of, of being contained. So. Ireland, Wales, Scotland and England, once they'd emerged with their own identities, um, have, have had to coexist. And we've probably had pretty much every configuration you could think of, 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 of union and disunion. Um, and, and again, currently, there are concerns as to whether Scotland will secede from the union. So this is, a, this is an ongoing challenge. Um, and it is hardwired in because of the strength of those identities. And I think that's something that, you know, in the United States is very prevalent. When I, when I meet people from the United States who have British heritage, um, it's, it, you know, they're very plugged into which part of the British Isles that they come from. Those identities are very strong and they survive centuries, even not in Britain. Dominic, one of the uh, themes that I identified in the book that was so interesting was the British identity through language whether it was Beowulf and uh, moving on to the secret language of the, of the Canting Academy, to Tony Blair and Cool Britannia, and how that changed the way people pronounced English, flattening accents, and even the Queens. That was a fascinating part of, of the British identity. Could you uh, speak to some of that? 
Yeah, I'm, I'm very grateful that you brought up language because I think if I try and look at what is it that brings all this disparateness together in Britain, I mean, lang language is one of them. I know that there are lots of regional variations and dialects and accents, but the English language is this great amorphous magpie juggernaut is an incredible thing. And I think since, since Anglo-Saxon times, um, and I use that in a historical sense, I don't mean that, I know it's a difficult word now, but, but since, since the Anglo-Saxon period, um, the evolution of the language and the things that it has taken on, absorbing the indigenous Welsh languages or Brythonic languages, uh, which are represented in, in modern English, evolving through into Middle English, taking on board Norman and then Andrew French, <clears throat> and, then, and then as Britain started looking more more outwards, absorbing Arabic, Hindi, Chinese, uh, places from, you know, from all of the places that it's been. And so ending up with this incredibly rich vocabulary, you don't just have one word for something, you have so many words for it, which creates this incredible vivacity uh, and ability for expression in English, which is, it, it's not, it's not, well, all languages are unique, but I think English is, is quite unique in its ability for, for expression. And you're right that it does, it does absolutely evolve, not only in those big periods, but the Tony Blair and the Queen is, is very interesting. If you listen to um, recordings of the Queen from when she was a young woman and now, the accent has changed very significantly. And that's, that's about more of a, a levelling across in England, less distinctions, um, because um, many messages about class used to be sent in accents, so those are all levelling off in some ways. And someone like Tony Blair or even Lady Diana um, purposefully trying to sound less educated um, and trying to sound um, more how they think it will be acceptable to the average listener um, um, to what they were saying is absolutely fascinating. But they are they are dealing with this language that's it's an accidental survivor, really, when one thinks so many languages perished in history because an invader took over the country and, 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 and the old language was lost very quickly. But English was the mother tongue. It was the language of all those uh, uh, medieval women who, despite the fact that there were, you know, Norman French rulers, they were still educating their children in their mother tongue. And so, and so English survived. And now we have it as, as pretty much the world's global language. I mean, I, I remember back in the 70s, you know, there was still discussion about whether French or English, you know, should be the language of diplomacy, should be the language of international. Com Actually, you know, English now with with the Internet and with business, more people in China learning English than there are English speakers in England, uh, in Britain. Uh, English has become the world language. and It'll be so interesting to see what happens. Will it fragment into different Englishes spoken in different parts of the world, as as we currently see with different grammar? in many places in different words, or will it just combine into a homogenous Panglish and we'll end up with, with, with one English that's sort of universal? Dominic, because it was so interesting, could you just uh, tell our viewers and listeners a little bit about the Canting Academy? It's a completely fascinating bit of history that I think most people did not read. Yes, absolutely, with pleasure. So this is a, a book that was that was published in the um, late 1600s, so at the Stuart Court, and it is a book of underworld criminal slang. And um, people may have heard of Cockney rhyming slang or other, other more modern versions, which in one way or another were used to um, conceal people's activities, particularly from the police. Um, uh, often for nefarious ends, but this has a long history. So the Canting Academy, Canting was a language or a dialect of English in, in, the, in the 1500s and 1600s, 
which had elements of many things in it, including uh, 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 Romany, which came from the gypsies who arrived in the in the in the 1500s. Um, but it is wonderful. I'm, I reproduce uh, several pages of the dictionary. Some of the words still exist in, in English slang, so some you would still recognize. Um, like booze, for example, or, or cove for a person. But others, others have just long gone and they have a wonderful uh, historic resonance to them. And it's exciting to think that even back then people were, they were having to produce dictionaries of this because it was absolutely unintelligible to those who weren't in that world. <laughs> I, I don't think we can see this on, on the television, but there are all sorts of wonderful illustrations in your book and uh, uh, pictures of documents, for example. Uh, which make it even better. But I want to point out, when you get a book of this type, people tend to think it might be very difficult to read, very academic. But this one is a romp. It is good fun to read. And I congratulate you on being able to do that with such a, with such a broad subject without falling into the academic trap of uh, being boring, actually. Uh, oh, that's think... kind of you to say. But I want I, I think for me, history isn't about dates and battles um, and theories. History is about people and their stories. So I kept very grounded to, to people and their experiences. And I think that probably helped it um, re read more like stories about people and less like... Well, what is your personal view of Brexit? I, I have to confess that I worked for Lord Beaverbrook opposing Britain's entry when I was a very young man. And subsequently, I realized, I thought so, I think, that he was dead wrong and that uh, the European Union really was a very exciting undertaking. So I was very depressed by Brexit. Uh, what are your feelings about it? Can Little Britain stay alone like that and be as influential as it could as a major member of the European community? I, I think um, one of the reasons I wanted to write the book was to explain that I think Britain is connected to its neighbors culturally. That when one thinks back to the, to the medieval period, that sense of Romanitas or Romanness, which is what stitched Europe together, keeping alive the heritage of Greece and Rome, which it did you know, long into the, into the sort of Reformation and the early modern period. That is something which makes Britain for all its differences a European country, and it always has been. Of course, there are differences. There are differences between all countries, but it is part of that family. It's part of the Western humanist Roman inheriting group of countries. So um, I, I, uh, Winston Churchill, after World War II, gave a very famous speech in which he said, there has been so much bloodshed on this continent. Let Europe arise. This is the one institution which will keep us from killing each other. And he said, but Britain won't be part of it. Britain will be with its American friends and Australian and Canadian and New Zealand. We will do our own thing, but you know, we will watch and we will help. Um, so I think he was absolutely right. I think, I think Europe does serve a very important purpose. Um, I think he was wrong in keeping Britain out of it and Britain quite quickly decided he was wrong and did enter into it. Um, and I think Britain were wrong to leave it. Um, I think, like many institutions, it needs reform. Of course it does, nothing's perfect, but you change something well by being inside it and contributing. And Britain had a very powerful role, was a deeply respected member of Europe. And of course, for, for America, was the bridge into Europe. And as soon as England has exited that position, it's lost influence with America because it can no longer provide that function and it's lost influence in Europe. So I think the challenge for us now to reinvent ourselves is pretty hard because we are 
uh, we've now divorced ourselves from most of our heritages and we're looking around wondering, well, well who are we? And I think that's part of the, the, the identity crisis that we're in. Talking about another difficult issue, Scotland, the long history of England and Scotland has often been intense and often been bloody. And then there was the Act of Union a little over 300 years ago. Uh, and now that's framed somewhat. There are those who would like to make Scotland an independent country. What are your views on that, uh, Dominic? It, it's, it's, uh, it's part of a quite a global trend in many ways. Um, it, is, it is nationalism, uh, of course, but nationalism has become more prevalent than, it, than, it, than ever it was you know, in my lifetimes or previous, um, you know, going back to the Second World War, but it, it, it's with us again uh, in a real way. And that has been a shot in the arm for Scottish nationalists. Um, as you rightly point out, Scotland has a very firm culture of its own. Um, but also, Scotland has been an incredible contributor to, to this amalgam of, of the United Kingdom. And we look in the book at how actually, you know, British military activity really wasn't very successful uh, in the period before Scottish uh, uh, the Union. But afterwards, you know, some of some of the most famous uh, uh, British victories and battles come with that contribution, that amalgamation of Scotland and England. So uh, the debate is on the table again because of complexities around Brexit, the fact that, that the Scots voted very seriously to stay with the European Union, but have been pulled out effectively by the by the English vote, um, has increased, ha, has um, has brought very significant tensions. Um, and because of several decades of allowing the, the devolved parts of the United Kingdom to have votes on independence when they reach certain thresholds, um, or, 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 you know, it's desired in certain ways, it means that there will very likely be another such vote. Last time it was won, I wouldn't say hugely comfortably, but it was won in favour of retaining the union. Uh, next time round, um, it may be quite likely to be much more of a knife edge. We're coming towards the end of our time, so there are a couple of things I'd really like to touch on. One is, of course, the British Empire. Uh, what was its role? Why has Britain not really regretted losing it in the sense that you might anticipate? It hasn't felt, or it doesn't seem to me it's felt the sense of deprivation from being the world's greatest power to being a quite marginal country by comparison to where it once stood. And uh, <clears throat> what, what do you think of the empire? I was born into it as a British colony, grew up with this education which said Britain is great. It's, it was a hero culture, it was a hero education, whether it was Clive of India, Wolf of Canada, Rhodes of Africa, um, entirely different educational system today, an entirely different way of looking at this history. The other one I would like you to comment on is, which Linda touched on in your conversation a little bit, uh, about the creativity of Britain, which has so changed the world. Empire is a fascinating question, I think in America as well now. Um, and the last 10 years have seen an extraordinary amount of change and thought about this. Um, so I see a couple of things. Um, I mean, I remember, and I remember in my parents' home and my grandparents' home, maps where a quarter of the world was covered pink, all those generations brought up to, to, to work in an imperial context and to be part of a Britain that was at the centre of an empire. And that has gone. And that is an incredible shock, actually, in a short period of time. Uh, because the world really has changed. Um, and so not only is it about understanding what Britain is 
post-empire and of course other countries have had to deal with the loss of their empires as well but but um there's now in a lot of fields uh, questioning about empire not taking empire um as they heard about it or learnt about it but but questioning things and deciding there are bits about empire that people don't like and lots of the um lots of, of academia and the younger generations now are very critical about lots of lots of bits of empire um, and so that is very interesting. I know that in the States you have, and we have here in the UK as well, wars over statues, which, which people should be up there, which, which people should we still be celebrating in our public spaces. And although it's probably overly simplistic, most, most statues that are from, from uh, imperial times or celebrate imperial figures, even if they went up later, are regularly now the subject of, of great controversy as people evaluate um, what empire means and what it should mean and whether we want to have statues of people like Clive of India outside the Foreign Office or Oliver Cromwell outside Parliament or you know what, what, whatever it might be. People are re-evaluating history and I think, I think what's really interesting about that is it has brought history into the mainstream in a way that sort of centuries of classroom teaching hasn't done and that people go out and protest about history now. I mean I just simply I couldn't have imagined that 15 years ago you know but people are tearing things down they're throwing statues into the Bristol Channel. And finally dominate uh, Britain is seen as very creative, maybe the creative. most creative nation. Is there a way to measure it? And is that judgment correct? Creativity is one thing that I that I highlight in all of the ages. So for example, Anglo-Saxon Britain, again, uses a technical term, incredible book producers, Anglo-Saxon books were the best in Europe. They were, they were the most varied, they were the most detailed, whether it was science, whether it was philosophy, whether it was just the book production, the physical beauty of things like the Lindisfarne Gospels and so on. So incredible creativity. And I think we've seen that all throughout history. Um, um, while staying with books, I have, a, I have a chapter on typography. So many of the typefaces that people read and use every day, you know, invented in Britain. But one of the things I think about British creativity, which spans so many different domains, is there's often something quite accidental about it, um, which, is, which, is, which is rather wonderful. It, it's sort of the gifted amateur, I think, sort of you know, the dilettante. I think that's very British. So from the first poet, Cadmon, who the Venerable Bede tells us about, who was a cowherd, but dreamed this beautiful poem and is Britain's first poem, all the way through to the inventors of those typefaces, people like Baskerville, he was actually an expert in Japanning, or Caslon, he was actually a gun engraver. Tim Berners-Lee, who invented the internet, was actually just designing a phone directory for CERN. A lot of these people weren't actually trying to do what, what they ended up doing. Chaucer wasn't really an author, right? he was a diplomat and a public official. Um, so the, the sort of the, the accidental creativity of Britain, I think is, is something that I, I really would pull out as something that is fairly uniquely British. Other countries often have very serious people doing it, like the, the French philosophes, you know, the, the philosophers of the Enlightenment. But three British people really invented the Enlightenment, Locke, Bacon and Newton, but they, they did it by accident, by chance. It wasn't their main job and it's not what they wanted to be remembered for. We're out of time, but I think it can be said without doubt that you are one of Britain's creative people. And if you want to read this book, you will see some of that creativity at work. It is Anatomy of a Nation, a wonderful gallop through the history of England. I enjoyed it enormously, and I salute you, Dominic, for your ability to pull all of this together and present it in a very digestible way. Thank you for coming on our broadcast. Thank you. I've really enjoyed this chat. That's our show for today, and uh, time to put the box away and relax a little bit. Cheers. White House Chronicle is available as a podcast on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, 
wherever you listen, we are there.